You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. It is a joy to be back with our church family. We, we love getting away. We love especially when that getting away involves the beach, although I have to tell you, I came within two feet of a hammerhead shark. Seriously, two feet of a hammerhead shark. I graciously removed myself from that situation and decided to let the entire beach know of the impending peril of that one and a half foot baby hammerhead shark. (laughs) It was a great week being away. It was great to be able to get refreshed. We lived out Mark 6 as I preached a few weeks ago where we were able to just get away and reset and refresh and recalibrate, but we were missing our church family and it is a delight to be back with you. It is also a delight to know that you are in good hands. I listened to both messages. The message last week from Ken was especially convicting as well as encouraging as he taught me that the love that I have for my wife, for my children, for my church, for my community needs to be a Christ-rooted and reflecting love, not the emotional or up-and-down love that the world models to us, and that has been on my mind. It has been part of discussions with our family, and I pray that that's been an encouragement to you. I also was so blessed and reminded of the value of biblical counseling. And some of you, that was an introduction. For others of you, hopefully it was a valuable review of how the complicated circumstances and influences of our lives and the complicated symptoms that can even produce a diagnosis of something such as bipolar disorder can actually be influenced and redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was so grateful for the message that Chad gave of laying that foundation. And perhaps you, like me, when I was introduced to biblical counseling, were left wanting more. We're left with the foundation, but saying, okay, now I want to build upon that. So I've been talking with Chad, and we're going to be looking for an opportunity for him to preach a part two of that, where he can give us even more practical tools that will allow each individual in this church to be able to evaluate complicated circumstances in our lives and the lives of others and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ for hope in those circumstances. Well, this morning is an opportunity for me to kind of eat crow and to hopefully be able to be more relatable with you. Have you ever thought about sending a very important email to a family member or a professor or a manager where you you work through it many times in your mind and then you craft it and you're like Ralphie from Christmas Story and you're like, "Mm, that's good. Rarely did the words flow from my typewriter like they did in that moment. Well, I didn't use a typewriter, but anyway... I sent that email to all of you who are on our our e-newsletter about the importance of this message. But then I started getting texts. Oh, pastor, I know this is going to be a hard message. Oh, I know something major is going on. There's spiritual warfare going on, which, of course, there is. But I'm thinking, what did I write that has people so freaked out about this? And I realized that I, I could have done a better job crafting that email, communicating what I intended to communicate. But the bottom line is we've decided as elders to be able to allow women to be part of the deacon office here at the church. So let's pray. Just kidding. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure we were all here so we could all be on the same page 
so that we could have a, a foundational understanding of what the Bible says about that, but also how our elders arrived at that decision, but also to be able to use this as an exercise so that as social trends and even evangelical trends shift in a direction that is different from tradition, we will have tools and a model for how we as Christians can wrestle with Scripture and make sure that the decisions and the convictions that we have are biblically defensible. So in order to do that, we've got to step outside of the norm. And i got to tell you, I love the norm. I, I, I love knowing the passage that I'm going to preach on a Sunday because it's the next passage in that book. I love sitting down and translating the languages and seeing the discoveries of the, the color that that adds. I love looking at the historical context. I love looking at how that passage fits within the bigger story of Scripture. I love looking at the rest of Scripture to see is this topic or passage addressed in the future that would shed light on this passage. I, I love that. But every once in a while, it's important to preach topically. Every once in a while, it's important for a, a preacher to be able to explain how he arrived and how an elder group arrived at a decision. So this is going to be different than the norm of walking verse by verse through a passage. Lord willing, that will re rekindle and re restart next week. But, but, but to that end, I'm going to ask you for grace to allow me to develop this by giving you a little bit of a personal testimony. Back in 1987, when I was transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ and the facts that I knew as a Christian school student became something that I owned and changed me on Lookout Mountain, one of the first changes that I could identify in my life is that the Bible moved from being a textbook of do's and don'ts to being the standard by which every thought, every word, every act of my life was evaluated. It moved from being just a book of religious stories to being the redemptive plan of the God of the universe, not just for my life, but for all creation from beginning to end. It, it began to be in my life an opportunity to see Christ and how that passage gets me to Christ on every page. And so I couldn't get enough of it. And I started looking for pastors and authors who had the same passion that I did, pastors and authors who allowed me to be able to navigate through the, the deep spaces of Scripture, which maybe some of you have heard this quote by Augustine. He said of the Gospel of John, and it applies for all of Scripture, that the, the Bible is deep enough for an elephant to swim, but shallow enough that no child can perish. And that is true. Haven't you read passages where you just read it and it's obvious and it makes sense and then other passages that you read and read and read and you just can't get it? The Bible is deep and it is shallow enough that anyone can understand the essence of it, but, but we need help. We need guides to navigate us through the deep waters and to better understand the, the, the shallower parts. And so I, I, I grabbed on to guys like MacArthur, John MacArthur and John Piper and R.C. Sproul and would listen to their messages and read their books. And if they believed it, I believed it. And I would take those convictions and all of a sudden become so black and white about them that if anybody believed something differently than me that they were certainly on the edge of the cliff of heresy and I've learned something about myself 
And that is that I tend to be very black and white and see all doctrine as hills to die on. And so this morning is actually an opportunity to continue to educate my own heart and my own mind, but also us as a church to understand that doctrine is important. Amen? Doctrine is foundational to a healthy church and a healthy walk with Christ. Amen? But doctrine has different layers. And I've shared this before, but I'm actually borrowing from a book that our elders are going through called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. And he reminds us that there are usually two extremes within the church, two extremes within Christianity. On one extreme are the fighting fundamentalists. I tend to be on this team. And this team really was organized because people understood that doctrine is important. That we need to be able to arrive at accurate doctrine. That if doctrine is inaccurate, it needs to be called out. Right doctrine needs to be defended. As Jude said, we must earnestly contend for the faith. And all the fighting fundamentalists say, amen. But if we're not careful, the results of that is that we leave people in our doctrinal wake. If we're not careful, we miss the heart of the New Testament and the author of that doctrine, the Holy Spirit. And there's another category of people who are the whatever crowd. And they're about Jesus and Jesus only. And in saying that, though, there's something below the surface that is not necessarily biblical. They have seen all of the casualties of doctrinal debate. And they have just said, hey, we're all about Jesus. And Jesus was about compassion and mercy and grace. So we are about that Jesus. But the result of that is that often that crowd ends up preaching a Jesus that morphs and shifts with social trends and evangelical debates. Beloved, I I, I contend and I propose to you that doctrine is a system of triage. We have some medical professionals in this room, and you know that if you're in the medical world or if you're just logical, you understand that you treat a boo-boo differently than you treat cancer. There is such thing as triage in the medical world, and there's such thing as triage in the doctrinal world. There are some hills that are essential These must be defended. They are hills to die on in order for somebody to demonstrate that they are orthodox, that they have right doctrine, to demonstrate that they are a follower of Jesus Christ. And this has been produced generation after generation after generation. Then there are other doctrinal convictions that are very important because of the potential impact that they have on those essentials and also because of the way that a a local group of believers will function together in unity. And those are very important. Those are secondary, though, and will not necessarily change whether or not you're a follower of Christ or whether you are orthodox. And then there's a third level of theological or doctrinal triage that because it is in the Bible, it is a hill that we should climb. And beloved, let me just pause right there and and just remind us as Christians that if something is in the Bible, it is a hill worthy of us and responsible for us to climb. So the millennium is in Scripture. Now, whether it's a literal 1,000 years or not, that's the fun of the climb. 
The end times are in the scriptures, so that's a hill for us to climb. But where we land on whether we are pre-trib, post-trib, no-trib, that's a fun part of the climb. But those hills, beloved, are not something for us to impact whether or not we function in unity as a body of Christ. Those are hills for us that do not determine whether or not we are followers of Jesus Christ. And so that concept of triage is important for us, and I need to hear that because in those early days of me being a pastor of this church, I was a fighting fundamentalist. How dare anybody believe anything different than me? And how dare anybody be considering this church under membership unless you agree with every jot and tittle of our bylaws? Well, we're not there anymore, thank God. But we still believe doctrine is important. And this has demonstrated itself and illustrated itself in a very unexpected way as I became a parent. You know, when you're a child, your parents, man, they're they're fallible, aren't they? I mean, how dare they... Do not let me eat dessert before dinner. How dare they make me eat my chow, the chow mein that my mom lovingly made before me. That was like, that was kryptonite for me growing up. Hours left at the table where the, the instruction was, you will not leave the table until you eat your chow mein. I would not eat it. And so I had this process of considering someday if God blessed me with children that I would make it right that I, I would be that first perfect parents that my parents had failed miserably ever becoming. And so my wife and I charted a course. But let me ask you this. Have you ever met another family that has the same exact convictions as yours? If you're saying yes, let me just throw out a few examples. Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, social media, public school, private school, homeschool. You see, what Sally and I learned very quickly is that there are, there are certain essentials that if you claim to be a Christian parent, you must do this. But there is a whole lot of gray area, a whole lot of area for wisdom decisions that might look different for you than they do for us. That has illustrated time and time again the importance of triage, and I still haven't arrived, but I'm progressing, and we are as a church. So we arrive at the topic of women as deacons, and I understand the potential challenge that that might be to some of you. As I was driving in this morning, I was listening to the Lutheran Hour, not because I'm Lutheran, but because that's what's on 92.3, and I just need something to focus my, my mind as I'm driving in. And the host of the Lutheran Hour identified two individuals that he was going to bring into the conversation. The first one was a deaconess, And the voice that I heard after that was a woman. The other person was introduced as a pastor. The voice that I heard after that introduction was a man. And I was reminded that different denominations will have different convictions on men and women in ministry. And that influences our convictions, doesn't it? Some of you might come from denominations where deacons both have authority and they serve the church. Some of you might come from denominations or traditions where pastors in the church are women. So what I want to do this morning is walk through how we arrived at the decision that we did, what it means, but also what non-negotiables there are for us as a church leadership. So before we dive in, let me give you three non-negotiables that I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. 
to make sure that we're all on the same page, we're all on the same foundation before I unpack how we arrived at our decision. Number one, we as a church have been, are, and will continue to be, as long as I'm here, complementarian. So that's a big word that if you're not familiar with, it means that men and women in the home and the church complement each other but have distinct roles. In fact, there's a a definition that I'd like to put up on the screen. This is one that I've used and I've created to simply summarize where we've landed as a church. Complementarianism is the affirmation that men and women are equal in personhood and value in the eyes of the Creator who, in His gracious design and provision, assigns distinct and complementary roles for them in the home and the church. So that is in contrast to a conviction that some churches and individuals have called egalitarianism. Again, another big word, but it sounds, at least in my mind, like the word equal, and that's exactly what they're trying to convey. Is that men and women are equal in personhood and value, but the roles are open. Every role, every scenario is open to men and women, both in the church and in the home. As we've studied scripture, as we've let scripture interpret scripture, we have arrived as elders at the conviction that has been the traditional conviction throughout church history that complementarianism is what the New Testament teaches and not egalitarianism. So that means, brings me to number two. There has been and always will be a distinction between the roles of men and women in the home and the local church, and we intend to uphold these distinctions regardless of social pressures or trends in evangelicalism. Now, that sounds a lot like number one, but the distinction that I want you to focus on is that there will be strong pressures in society and in evangelicalism. In fact, if we look at the last few decades, because of some wrongs that our society had when it came to men and women, there has been this wheel-jerk reaction to basically remove the traditional roles, to remove what the Bible says with the design for men and women, and to function standardless in society. I mean, no matter how strong those pressures are, it doesn't change what the Word of God says. Therefore, our church will not be influenced by God's grace by those social pressures. But there's also pressures in evangelicalism. Some of you have been following what's been going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. They just had their annual conference, and we are affiliated with the SBC. And we are watching that as elders and thankful that they have upheld the essentials of orthodoxy, but we are watching those secondary and third-level triage doctrinal issues with great attention. But there's been some great debate within the SBC whether or not the Bible teaches egalitarianism or complementarianism, and no matter how strong those evangelical pressures become, even with churches and organizations with which we affiliate, we will continue to maintain and uphold what the Bible teaches about it, which moves me to number three. And this is important for who we have been, who we are, and who we will continue to be as a church. Elders serve the church by leading as the authority on doctrine, discipline, and direction and this is reserved for men only. I preached on this a few, week, few months ago, but here are some reminder verses just to continue to further found and ground our beliefs in this. But also, deacons 
serve the church by administering the church's stewardship of the facility of the finances and family needs. This office of service is open to qualified men and women. That's the conclusion that we've come to as we've studied Scripture. Now, is this something that we have just decided on and, and dug into because of social pressures and the trends of evangelicalism? And the answer to that is no. In fact, even from the early days of our church leadership, this was on our radar. The first installation of deacons, we sat around as that first generation of elders and said, should we allow women to be deacons? And what happened is that there were a lot of different levels of experience. There were a lot of different traditions. There were a lot of different levels of study that had occurred on that small group of elders within our church. And so we evaluated that, evaluated how young our church was, and decided that's an important topic, but we'll need to address that later. And through the years, we have had many important topics that have been on the front of our radar. So this has always been there, but it's been on the back burner. And as the movement of our fellowship and our new church network, as the change in our name, as the selling of our building and the finding our new building and the construction of it, all of that has, has settled. And now we found ourselves in a season where we can and have dug into this. And this is the conclusion that we have arrived at, which brings me to the message. <laughs> Let's look, number one, at the designer of men and women and the roles that we have, and that designer is the God of grace. It's the God of grace. Would you turn over to Genesis chapter one? Beloved, this, this outline point is not just a duh or a, okay, this is church, so he has to says that, say that. Th- this outline point is actually intentional because it is foundational to the Christian faith. It is also foundational to doctrinal or theological triage. Consider this. If the first question that you are asking yourself is, how do I feel about a doctrine? How do I feel about a theology? How has it impacted me? Guess what? You are going to arrive at a decision for hills to die on that is not biblical and is not Christ-honoring. It is going to be me-centered. When the approach to theology begins with God, his glory, his attributes, then we are at the right starting point to determine which level of triage our hill of doctrine is in. It's also important, beloved, that when you study the Bible, this is where you begin when you're evaluating what you should be getting out of a passage. I had a conversation with a gentleman this last week, and he was just saying how he gets bogged down by the genealogies. Anybody can relate to that? He gets bogged down in Leviticus with the skin diseases and all of those chapters. He gets bogged down in Exodus with the details of the tabernacle. And if the approach that we are taking to the Bible is, where am I in the text? What does it mean to me? Yeah, those passages will be difficult and challenging and boring. But when we begin our reading of Scripture looking for God and His character, even more so when we begin with the expectation and the focus of seeing how this passage advances us toward Christ, beloved, we are on the right starting point that God intended for our study of Scripture. And then you can see the genealogies. Then you can see Leviticus and the tabernacle with new eyes, with eyes that are clear, with lenses that are ready to be able to 
discover the wealth of the riches and the treasures that are found on every passage of Scripture. But there's a third reason why we begin with God. And that is because, beloved, the gospel begins with God. So many of our gospel presentations begin with the sinner or begin with the destination, and don't you want to go to heaven? But friend, the gospel begins with God, with his holiness, with his authority, with his standard being the standard by which every human soul will be evaluated, by his righteousness being the standard by which every thought, spoken word, and action will be evaluated. The gospel begins with God. The scriptures begin with God. Doctrine begins with God to the glory of Jesus Christ. So the discussion of women deacons begins with God. Three definitions that I would encourage you to write down. First of all, let's define authority. It's a simple definition. It's two words. You can write them down or you can remember them. It's God's word. You ever seen the Bob Newhart skit? You can see it on YouTube where the lady is freaking out because she's scared to be buried alive in a box. He says, I'm going to give you two words. This will solve your problem. She says, do you want me to write them down? He says, well, they're two words, but most people can remember them. Stop it! That's why this is so simple. The authority that should drive all of our actions, thoughts, and, be, and, and words in our lives is God's word. It's simple, but it's sometimes overly difficult for us to follow. From our earliest days, humans are prone to resist authority, aren't we? Tell a child not to touch that glowing red coil on a stovetop, what do they want to do? Tell a child that they need to clean their room, or a teenager to clean their room, and all of a sudden you're oppressive, and the environment in which they live is toxic. <laughs> but as you get older, guess what? The same principle applies. Think about the headlines and what we're hearing in entertainment. Human beings should be allowed to love whomever they want. You see, our natural bent is to resist authority. And beloved, part of the process of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ begins with surrendering to an authority that is outside of ourselves, that is outside of governments, it is outside of this horizontal world under the sun. It is vertical, and it is God's authority. What is God's authority? Well, it begins with writing this down, John 8, 26 and Romans 8, or 3, 4. John 8, 26 and Romans 3, 4 by recognizing that God himself is truth. God is truth. We live in a day where truth is relative, where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, but God says, no, 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 truth is absolute, and it is contained in him, in his character, in who he is. And so if that is true, and it is, whether you acknowledge it or not, just like we acknowledge that there is a sun, even though we can't see it, even though it seems like it will never come out in this place, it is there, whether we agree with it or we can see it or not, same thing is true. God is truth. But in his great grace and providence, he has given us the ability to actually see his truth. Would you write down John 17, 17? 
Jesus praying for the 12 disciples, but also every subsequent disciple for all generations, including you and me, prayed to the Father, sanctify them, set them apart, equip them for the task of holiness. How? By truth. What is truth? Jesus answers that. Your word is truth. But wouldn't it be nice if Jesus would have added some information that would have allowed us to be able to know what parts of your word are truth? Because there are pastors that are out there, including one here locally who has been very outspoken about it by the name of Adam Hamilton, one of the largest churches in America, who have made the statement that there are sections of the Bible that are not equal. Sections of the Bible that are historical or that are social in the original context that do not apply to us today. Beloved, listen, God says no. And I don't care the size of your church. I don't care how winsome you are. I don't care how complicated your arguments are. That is heresy. And so the fact of the matter is, is that every part of God's word is true. Would you write down 2 Timothy 3.16? Scripture is God-breathed. That means that God is the author of Scripture. And it is profitable for us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness... But there's an important phrase at the beginning of that verse. All Scripture. And I wish we had more time and I would unpack how that statement is actually used to describe both the Old and the New Testament, both the words of Jesus, the words of the Mosaic Covenant, the words of the apostles. It is all 66 books. Every word in their original authorship is God-breathed and is absolute truth. Now, (laughs) It's complicated. Again, there's shallowness so that even a child cannot drown, but there's also gaps between the modern reader and the ancient authors and audience. And so we need rules and we need guardrails to be able to help us interpret the word. That's why we have Matthew. You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll unpack it in a few months when my dissertation is done. But my argument of my dissertation is that the gospel of Matthew was written for a purpose and occurs at the beginning of the New Testament because Matthew intends to model the interpretive instruction that he received from Rabbi Jesus. In other words, Matthew is instructing the reader as Jesus had instructed him how to understand the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and interpret them. And so we take the guardrails of Rabbi Jesus and his scribes, the disciples and apostles, and we follow their interpretive method, and those serve as guardrails so that as we sit in the 21st century and we read a first century text or even beyond, that we can have a high level of confidence that our interpretation is what the original author intended for the original audience. God's word is the authority. So we define authority by saying it's God's word. Number two, second definition, let's define value for men and women, and that is equal in personhood. Equal in personhood. Now, unfortunately, especially conservative denominations have made this look differently within their churches. 
And I get it as the, as the feminist movement was beginning in the 20th century and actually before, there were those who valued doctrine and understood that the Bible teaches complementarianism. And so they understood there are certain roles that are reserved for men. There are certain roles that are open to men and women. But in their efforts, unfortunately, the collateral damage is, is that women were somehow relegated to second-class status in the church. And that is tragic. That is unfortunate, and it is unbiblical. I asked you to turn to Genesis 1. I hope you've arrived there. Genesis 1, beginning verse 27. Now, before I read this, let me just remind you that Genesis 1 is a high-level, quickly-paced summary of the first six days of creation. I'm just going to tell you, I personally believe those days were 24-hour days, but that's a secondary issue. We can have a coffee if you want to discuss that more. Not mad about it, just convicted. So chapter one, quick summary, flyby. That's why some things seem to advance and overlap in ways that when we read chapter two, they don't. But verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is a summary statement of day six. At the end of day six, as the sun was going down, Male and female, Adam and Eve were created. He created them both in God's image. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's a fun part. And subdue it. And exercise dominion over it. That's a responsibility. That can be a challenge. But I want you to notice something but it is a command to two individuals. It is a command to male and female. They are co-equal in personhood, co-equal in value, and both given the responsibility and the command to exercise kingly authority over creation. Now, let's get to chapter two. Chapter two is drilling down into that 24-hour period. And we see in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I'll just tell you that the the New Testament and the Bible translators into English are limited. A, they're fallible, but B, they're dictated by publishers. I'll never forget this. I was sitting in my introductory Hebrew class, and my professor was part of the translating committee for the Net Bible. Some of you might be familiar with that translation. And he shared something with me that I, I've remembered to this day, and that is, he said, remember that there are Hebrew terms that in order to fully understand and grasp that one word, that it takes 10 English words to explain it. But the publishers have said, hey, listen, we cannot have a Genesis that is this thick. So we need to do the best that we can to be concise. And so the translating committees are are driven by publishers and also their infallibility to do the best that they can possibly do to translate an ancient text into a modern language. Now, does that mean that the Bible that we hold in our hands is not God's word? No. But what it does mean is that it requires us to do some digging. It requires us to remember what the reformer said, that scripture interprets scripture. And in this particular case, I think the word fit could be better translated equivalent. 
In fact, if you go down to the footnote in your ESVs, it says corresponding to. If you drill down even further into Hebrew dictionaries, you'll see that that concept and that sense means equivalent. That God wanted to create another human being who is equivalent to man. I think this continues to drive home that in the eyes of God himself, in the eyes of the creator, in the eyes of the designer, men and women are equal in personhood and value. But there's some additional verses in chapter 2 that I think are important for us. Co-equal in person and value, but different roles. Look, would you please, at verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. That phrase is very important. To call someone or something by a name and to establish that is an illustration of your authority over them. As you look at the Old Testament, the majority of names for children were given by the Father. That is not coincidence. It is an expression of authority within the family unit. And so here we see Adam giving his first documented exercise of his kingly authority over creation by naming the animals. Now, go down to verse 23. This is after the event of God creating woman from the bone of Adam. And when Adam awakes and he sees the woman, the man man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Isn't that interesting? In Adam naming Eve, he was demonstrating an authority over her. Co-equal in personhood, co-equal in value, distinct in roles. Now what's fascinating is that in the verses that follow, and even in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we have no evidence that there was a tension in that equal value in personhood, but distinct roles. There's no tension. And that's God's original design, is that there can be function that is distinct and yet equal in value and personhood. Consider the Trinity. But there's a problem in verse 6 of chapter 3. A problem that would set everything on a course that we continue in to this very day. Genesis 3, 6 says, The woman saw the fruit, and it was a delight to her eyes. And she saw it, she wanted it, she took it, she ate it, she gave it to the man. And from that point forward, the design of God was fractured. Now it's fractured and it's advancing toward reconciliation. From Genesis 3 and verse 6 to the end of Revelation 20, we see that God's plan for redemptive history is rapidly advancing from brokenness to wholeness and that Christ is the vehicle for accomplishing that. That's Genesis to Revelation. There you go. But the fact of the matter is is that we live in a chapter, in a season of brokenness. And we see that brokenness specifically related to the roles of men and women in verse 16. Look at what it says as the Lord is explaining the impacts of the brokenness of his, God, of his design. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Again, a decision by the translators that I think, unfortunately, doesn't necessarily reflect the original language, but it gets the principle across. 
In the original, it says your desire shall be toward your husband or for your husband. And there's a lot of opinions on this, but it's been wasted pens and, and wasted paper. Because the context is actually given to us at the end of verse 16. The context is not part of the corruption is that a husband or a wife will desire sexually her husband. The desire that the woman has for her husband is to usurp his authority. That's what it says at the end of verse 16. It's right there. So now all of a sudden there is tension between men and women who have co-equal personhood and value but differing roles. As humanity continued, the function was okay for God followers as we see in the home. We see that demonstrated that when husbands exercise their authority in love and in grace for the purpose of moving their wives and their children toward faith in God, it functioned great. When, when husbands and wives did not function in that design, it was disaster, wasn't it? And so the home was the primary outworking of this authority, of this, this structure that God had, desi- had designed to help this fallen creation somehow function as best as it could in the way that it did before the fall. But then God chose a people in Genesis chapter 11 and 12 that began with a family headed by Abram. And as Abram functioned according to God's design, that family functioned great. When he didn't, it functioned horribly. And as that family grew and developed and became over a million people in Egypt, God graciously redeemed them and brought them out of slavery toward the promised land. And in that process, there's a logical understanding that those people needed structure and design, right? It's one thing for 70 people, which is the the number that is associated with Jacob's family that went down into Egypt, that is now a million people. It's one thing to function as 70. It's another thing to function as over a million. And so God gave design, and it continued to reflect the design that he had in creation and that he actually instructed coming out of Genesis 3.6. And that was that men and women would be co-equal in personhood and value, but they would have distinct roles. Think about the Mosaic Covenant. There were three categories of offices that were intended to protect, provide, and move the people toward faith in God. Those were prophets, priests, and kings. And with the exception of a very few number, those were always reserved for men or women. Which one? Men. Yes, there were some prophetesses. Yes, there was one queen in the long lists of kings of Israel and Judah. She was a disaster. We can see from that that the design of God has always been co-equal personhood and value of men and women, but distinct roles. And the same is true in the church. Which brings us to number two, the church the new covenant community. The new covenant community, as as God's design advanced from Adam and Eve to the Mosaic law, what we see is, most of all, the roles of distinction, the functions of distinction, were limited primarily to the family unit. 
They were limited primarily to a father having authority in a family. We see that with the patriarchs. And any time that a father did not fulfill his authority, any time that a wife attempted to raise up over the authority of the husband, how did that typically work out? Horrifically. So when we arrive, though, at the Mosaic Covenant, there begins to be some laws specifically about men and women within the community of God's people. And up to that point, a codified law was not necessarily required. Why? Because up to that point, even with Jacob's family, there were 70 in number. But by the time you get to Exodus, the people of God numbered over 1 million people. So as they left Egypt and headed to the promised land, God understood it is important to have a law or a code that explains design for roles. And what we see as the Mosaic Covenant unfolded is that the three primary roles of moving God's people toward a deeper worship of God are prophets, priests, and kings. And as we see that throughout the Old Testament, the majority, with a very few exceptions of the prophets, priests, and kings were men. Again, that's not because there was not equal value or not equal personhood, but because God has designed men and women to function complementary. So as we arrive at the new covenant, as Jesus instructs what the church should look like, we see once again the roles of men and women will complement each other. The new covenant community is established by a charter or a constitution that is found in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Did you write that down? In fact, you can turn over there if you'd like. Hopefully, if you've been coming to Ascend for a while, you're familiar with this passage. And while the entire New Testament gives us more details of the Constitution, it is summarized with one verb translated as two words in the English. The Constitution of the universal and the local church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples. Would you write that down? That is what the church is. That is what the church is intended to do. Make disciples. And some people have relegated church and their understanding to an hour and a half event on a Sunday unless the preacher goes over. Or maybe they've expanded their definition of church to say, well, it includes small group or it includes serving. But at the end of the day, church, universal and local, is making disciples. Now, thankfully, Jesus provided three participles that actually illustrate and apply that verb of making disciples. The first one is go. Beloved, this is a convicting point for me, and I hope that it is for you. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, your first responsibility is to be active in discipleship. And I think, unfortunately, we have arrived at a place of complacency as Christians in America, where Christianity has developed into a consumer mentality, where Christianity is what I can get out of a church, what I can get out of Scripture, when at the end of the day, Christianity is how am I contributing to discipleship? Which brings to the second participle. You see it right there in the text. We are to baptize 
people. What does that mean? That means we're evangelizing. We're we're teaching people who have not surrendered to the gospel, who have not been transformed by the hope that is offered in Jesus Christ. We are teaching them about the hope. We're doing that by living differently as Christians. We're doing that by trying to take any conversation that we can and turning it to Christ. Instead of getting so worked up with the politics of our country, instead of joining your coworkers and complaining about the president, point them to that the hope that is found for humanity is not in legislation or in a political branch, but in Christ and the gospel. That's what baptizing means. And then it also says to teach them to observe. Teach believers, teach disciples how to observe all that Jesus has commanded. What does that mean? That means we teach people Genesis to Revelation. People would say, what what does that mean to teach what Jesus taught? Well, that means I teach the Gospels, yes, but it also means teach the, the, the epistles. That is a commentary and an explanation on what Jesus taught. It also means the Old Testament. Remember Luke 24 when Jesus was on the road to the Emmaus with the two disciples. He actually criticized them because they did not understand the events that had taken place because they did not accurately understand the Old Testament. And what did he do? He marched through Moses and the prophets would have loved to have been there for that lesson. Actually, we can be by studying biblical theology. But the point that Jesus is making is that all of Scripture is what he taught. So, beloved, we make disciples by teaching Genesis to Revelation, by studying it ourselves, by growing and learning and teaching it and living. This is the local church, but the local church is corrupted by sin, just like every other area of creation. It cannot function with the distinct roles despite co-equal personhood and value without God stepping in and the gospel reigning supreme. Which brings us to number three, the offices. It is the provision for the churches. Would you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3? 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I know my time is running out, so I'm just going to rapidly run through this. But as you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you likely crossed Acts. Acts is a transitional book. It helps us better appreciate the humanity of the people of Scripture because they struggled with how do we move from the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant? How do we, Jews and Gentiles, function within the people of God? How do we better understand what God's plan for redemptive history is? And it wasn't just limited to Jew and Gentile. The apostles struggled with it. And these new churches struggled with design and functioning as new covenant communities. And we saw that in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. As the church in Jerusalem began to grow, there was conflict and needs were not being met. And the administration of the stewardship of those needs was, was required. And the apostles are looking at that and saying, there's so much need here that if we attend to that, something has to give. And they determined that their responsibility as the authority of the local church was to f- devote their attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. So their solution was to find some men who could administrate the stewardship of the needs of the church. Now, I would agree with John MacArthur, and that is that the Acts 6 account is temporary. It's not the establishment of the deacons. It's not the first group of deacons. Several of them functioned as authorities in local churches after that. But this would foreshadow what we see when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
First Timothy chapter 3 is further developed in the events of Acts chapter 6. More information had been given. The Holy Spirit had been working. And we get to First Timothy chapter 3, and we understand that Paul sees it necessary that every local church has an authority, and that is the elders. In fact, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul said, reminds Titus that he sent him to the island of Crete to establish elders in all the churches. The church needs an authority that can oversee doctrine, discipline, and direction and carry out the authority of King Jesus within the context of a local church. And the instructions of what the qualifications are for these men found in verses 1 through 7. But when we get to verse 8, we see the word deacons. Do you see that? The the word had actually occurred in the New Testament in a more general sense of every Christian must deacon one another. We must serve one another. But in this particular case, Paul is using this term as an official title for an office in the church. That is further explained by the second word that we see in verse 8, which is likewise. So he's drawing from his verses 1 through 7 qualifications and the identification of an official office of the church and saying likewise in the similar fashion, deacons. Now there's very much similarity. There's unique difference, and that is that the elders are responsible to teach the scriptures. The elders are responsible to defend and instruct theology, but there are a lot of qualifications that are alike. Then we get to verse 11. It says, their wives likewise. And we see a very brief list until we get to verse 12, where it returns to the topic of deacons introduced in verse 8. Now, verse 11, we have concluded as elders, refers not to the wives of deacons, but to women deacons. Let me give you four reasons for that. Number one, the word likewise is intended to identify a distinct group that is being addressed. This distinct group is recognized as a group of women. I think, unfortunately, the ESV has translated this with a possessive pronoun, which brings me to number two. There is no possessive pronoun in the original. And listen, I know this is technical, but it's important. The word that is translated wives can be translated women or wives, but there's no possessive pronoun. Paul is not saying the wives of deacons or else he would have used a possessive pronoun saying there. This is added by the translating committee to to explain or advance a position that they held. I appreciate the footnote that clarifies and says, literally this is more just women or wives. Third, The wives of elders are not listed in the qualifications for elders. Wouldn't we expect that? If a specific set of qualification for the wives of deacons is important, how much more so for the elders of the church? And then fourth, there's no family qualifications in this brief verse in verse 11. Why is that the case? Because the Bible understands that the responsibility for the function and the spiritual health of a family is reserved for the men. So the male elders are given family qualifications and the male deacons are given family qualifications, but not the female deacons. You can also write down Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. There's a woman there by the name of Phoebe who is recognized as a servant, which a lot of ink has been spilled, a lot of paper has been 
used to debate what this is, and I, I think it's pretty straightforward, although I allow with charity that it is not dogmatic. But the phrase in Romans 16.1 says, she is the servant of the church. That phrase seems to designate an official role or status within the church of Centrea. So what does this mean? It brings us to the application for us, number four, at Ascend. We have decided that the Bible allows for, and therefore we are going to proceed with, having women as deacons at Ascend. Four reasons for this, and I will close. Number one, the scripture allows for it, but it is not required. So that gives us a little bit more of grace that even though we haven't had them for 11 years, we will have them now. They were allowed but not required, and so we've been able to function in obedience to God's word, but now we recognize the freedom that we have, and so we are going to implement it. Number two, this helps with the visibility to remind everyone at Ascend of the value of women in ministry. Friends, we have so many women in this church who are all-star servants. And so this gives us an opportunity to recognize officially some of these women who not only are serving faithfully, but have these incredible qualifications of verse 11. Number three, Women traditionally, and in my experience, bring unique insight and giftedness. I am so grateful our family has my wife. I was by myself yesterday, and it was bordering on disaster. (laughs) The house is still up. I still ate. My wife's looking at me like, what happened? We'll talk about it later. But women bring unique skills, insight, and giftedness, and I think all of our current deacons would amen the opportunity to add them. And then number four, we are still ironing out details, and we are going to be looking for candidates, but what this will look like is over the next few weeks, we will be bringing before our congregation candidates for the next generation of deacons that will include men and women, and I just wanted to share with you how we arrived there.